on who you are or what your will is for us, but that you have revealed it. And so we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Matthew 20 this morning, if you want to start turning there as we're going through Matthew. Last week, uh, we discussed uh, the situation with the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and their mother coming to them, uh, requesting of Jesus that uh, they would be the greatest in his kingdom, that they would sit at his right and his left hands, and Jesus uh, correcting them, explaining to them that they didn't really understand what they were asking for, and that the true way to become the greatest in the kingdom is becoming the servant of everyone. And so we heard that teaching last week, and this week, um, as we move along through the book, which is one of the reasons why we do that, we're going to see Jesus actually demonstrate what he taught to the disciples. So Jesus practices what he preaches um, and gives them an example here. And so if you found your way there in Matthew 20, we're going to look at verses 29 through 34 this morning. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. You may be seated. Let's talk about eyesight for a moment. When a a newborn baby is born, we have some some newborn infants in our church, and will in a few months, and uh, Lord willing, we'll always have some newborns in our church in the future. Um... It takes about eight months after a baby's born for them to fully develop their eyesight. I didn't even realize this until I was uh, researching it. When a baby's first born, their eyes don't even work together. Uh, The way that you see things now is that your eyes have learned to work together to point in the same direction. And you'll notice sometimes with newborns, their eyes are just kind of all over the place. And it's because they're building the strength of those muscles and they're learning how to concentrate and use those things. Um, newborn babies don't, uh, most of them don't see colors yet. Uh, that's something that they develop. Red is the first color that they develop, and then it begins to progress. And so it takes about eight months for a baby to have the clarity of vision that a, a regular adult would have of being able to see this. If you've had small children or you have small children in your family, you'll notice um, it's around that time, between six and eight months, that a baby will start to recognize you across the room. And so usually you have to get really close to them. Uh, which is why they bond with mom, right? Because they're close to mom. That's the way that God made it. And they're looking at mom and dad's face when they're holding that baby and bonding with that baby. But it takes months for mom to walk into the room and you see the baby light up, that it recognizes that that's mom. So it takes time to do this. And so uh, there's a connection there with, with this text here this morning. And so the title of our message this morning is Developing Spiritual Eyesight. Developing Spiritual Eyesight. And so for many of us, uh, we were just like a little baby. We, Christ may have passed by us many times uh, before the Holy Spirit uh, brought us to life, 
and we did not see him or we did not recognize him. We did not have spiritual eyesight. And so how do we develop this spiritual eyesight? Maybe for the first time, if someone's not a Christian, but even as believers, uh, I would hope that you all would have a similar experience to what I have, that my spiritual eyesight is getting sharper as I grow in Christ. I have a, a better understanding of God's Word. I have a greater love for Christ. I'm more touched emotionally by the gospel as time goes on. And, uh, and these things develop over time. It takes longer than eight months to develop uh, the spiritual eyesight uh, of Jesus. But uh, the beauty is, um, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, that now it's like we look through a, a glass darkly, but then we will see him face to face. And so there is a day coming where we will have that perfect eyesight and be able to see Christ. So how do we develop this spiritual eyesight? Well, first, let's lay out our context here of where we're at here in the passage. You'll notice in verse 29, right at the beginning there, it says, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Now, we talked about this last week. We're coming up towards Jerusalem at Passover time. So a lot of people are traveling on foot or on animals, uh, and they're traveling in large groups for safety because there's bandits and things like that. So a lot of times they would travel in large groups because it was less likely that they would be attacked. And, and they're traveling through the Middle East here uh, on their way to Jerusalem for Passover because the Jews wanted to be able to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And Jesus and his disciples are traveling with this large crowd. And so some of these people were people that were following Jesus. Others weren't. They would have just been faithful Jews that were on their way um, to go celebrate Passover. But there's a large crowd that's with Jesus at this time. And you'll notice there it says, as they were leaving Jericho, this happened. They ran into these two blind men. And, and I want to get something out of the way because um, they're about a day away from Jerusalem. But there, there's a timeline conflict here. And what, what that means is if you read the gospel accounts of this story, some of them will say they were on their way into Jericho. Some of them will say they were on their way out of Jericho. And so the question is, uh, does that mean that the gospel writers are contradicting each other? And I want to point that out because I know we have people in our church that study and this may be something that you came across in your studies um, that you've wondered about. Um, of course, we know that Scripture does not uh, contradict itself because it's written by the same person. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired it. And so how do we understand this? Well, um, there's a couple different, uh, different theories that scholars have of explaining what's going on here. One of those is that there was actually an old Jericho and a new Jericho. So the old city was the one that was destroyed in the Old Testament. You remember the armies of Israel marched around the city and the walls collapsed. And remember Rahab was there and, and she hid the spies. And, and uh, it's, it's uh, very interesting that in, in the grand scheme of things that uh, one of Jesus' ancestors, uh, Rahab, was in this same area in Jericho. And he's kind of coming, coming back uh, to his uh, family grounds there. So there was an old Jericho, but then they had rebuilt the city of Jericho nearby. And so some scholars would say, well, some, which Jericho are we talking about? Some of the gospel writers would have said, well, they're leaving Jericho because maybe they were passing through old Jericho on their way into new Jericho. Others would have said, well, it could have been the other way around. Maybe they were leaving new Jericho and they were passing through old Jericho. And so they said, well, we were leaving the city of new Jericho and we were going through old Jericho on our way. So that could be part of the explanation of why do, they, why do some of them say they're going in or going out. Others say that it's uh, possible that in this passage that uh, Jesus may have encountered these blind men more than one time. So it may have been that uh, as they were going out of Jericho or out of, out of the new city, 
that they encountered them the first time that he's crying out, and then it's possible that he encountered them a later time if he was traveling through the city and talk, spoke with them the second time. And so there's a few different, different theories about that, but the important thing is, is that we have to remember that the, God, the writers of the four Gospels, the reason why we have four is because they have different perspectives. This is the way that God uh, designed it to work. And so uh, a lot of times, um, if I was, if, if was going to give you directions to somewhere in the county, if, you've, if you're like me, I've only lived here for five years, I'm going to use street names. If you have grown up in Haywood County, you're going to use mountain names, which are not streets. This is one of the first things I learned in Haywood County. You know, uh, we were here for two or three years before we figured out where the old Walmart was. So the old Walmart is a landmark in Haywood County. If you've lived here, you say, oh, well, that's up near where the old Walmart was. Another person might say, oh, well, that's over off of, uh, what is it, Paragon Parkway or something that's out there, right? And so both of those things are correct, but depending on the perspective of the person that's giving the directions, they may word the directions differently so the person understands it. And so we see the same thing with the gospel writers. If they're trying to describe uh, where did Jesus actually encounter these men geographically, and one of them has a certain thing in mind and another one has a certain thing in mind, the directions that they give might be, might be different. And of course, spiritually, it really makes no difference because the story is about Jesus encountering these men and not about the geography. But I do want to point that out um, because those are the kind of little things that people try to use to destroy our faith. Is they'll say, well, see, the gospel writers contradicted each other here. Therefore, Jesus is not the Son of God. He did not die for your sins. You have no hope of salvation, and the entire Bible is untrue um, based on geography. And so uh, we want to dismiss that and just say, that's a silly argument. There's obviously clear explanations that are not twisting uh, the scriptures to be able to explain um, why they would have geography like this. So I want to I move that out of your mind in case you've become confused by that because God's word is trustworthy. So this is the context. They're somewhere in the proximity of Jericho and they encounter these blind men. And so what are these blind men doing? Well, socially blind men were some of the lowest uh, people in society. The reason why is, is that they couldn't do any work. So they had no way to earn a living for themselves. Um, often uh, family members and others couldn't care for them because they were working and doing other things. And so in some ways they were seen as a burden on society, and so they were left to beg. And so somebody would guide them out to the city gate, and they would sit there and they would beg for money. Um, and they, were, they, they weren't capable of doing anything to earn money, and so this was the living that they had is the little bit of money they would get they would have a family member or something maybe that would take them to the market to get some food or some clothing or, or some things like that. But uh, essentially, that was what their life was like. And isn't it interesting that in the passage prior to this, Jesus says, uh, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you have to be the slave of everyone. And then he picks the lowest person to serve. So he's demonstrating to his disciples, this is what I mean. Uh, these men are not asking to be the greatest in the kingdom like you guys were. And I'm, I'm putting myself below them. I'm, I'm actually answering their request. I'm listening to them. So there's two things that I want us to see about uh, vision in this passage. The first thing in verses uh, 30 and 31 is their, the, the blind man, their vision was fixated. Their vision was fixated. Read it again. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. So they were fixated on Jesus as he was passing by. Uh, they, were, they, 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 were, they could not be distracted. 
They could not be shushed. They were fixated on him. It's a couple things. First, they didn't have fear of man. They were not concerned about what these other people thought about them because they were so low, they were so humble in society that they weren't looking for praise or recognition from anyone. They'd never had that their whole life. And so there was no fear of man there. And so how do we know that? A couple things. Well, for one, the, the word, when it says that they cried out, it's a harsh cry. Uh, have, you ever heard, have you ever really heard uh, an adult man's desperate cry? We're not talking about just tears, but we're talking about that like uh, hoarse, loud, desperate cry for help. Most of us have never really heard that in our lives. Um, most of us have never been around somebody that was in, in such a, a terrible circumstance that they cried out with everything that they had. Probably the closest that we've seen is if you've uh, been near somebody. I, I think about um, when, when I first uh, came to Barberville. It was probably maybe my second year here. Um, there was a, a dear older couple in the church, and I remember uh, Chris and I were there uh, right after um, this man's wife had passed away, and I heard that cry where the person that you've been married to longer than you haven't <laughs> um, goes to be with the Lord. There was this desperate cry of, uh, he just cried out, I loved her. That's what he cried out. And it's just this raspy expression of emotion of I don't care what anybody thinks right now I don't care whether anybody agrees with me right now I don't care what I look like right now this is just the raw emotion of I have uh, I, I'm desperate and that's the language that's used for these blind men as Jesus walks by as we've seen with others right with lepers the woman with the issue of blood the centurion the Canaanite woman as we've seen with these other examples in Matthew there's this desperation of what if this is the last time that he passes by? What if this is my last chance? That cry, is, that cry is happening in Afghanistan right now. Can you imagine being there and seeing a plane leave? What if this is my last chance? There were some people that died because they, they held on to the plane because they were so desperate. And that's where these men were. They were fixated on Jesus of, this is it. If I don't get his attention now, if I can't speak to him now, I may never have a chance again. And so they had no fear of man. They weren't concerned about the crowds. Even though the crowds, it says they were, they were sternly telling them to be quiet. This is, this is Jesus you're talking to here. He doesn't want to talk to you. You're not important. You just sit over there and be quiet and take your money. Here's some money. Be quiet. Go away. This is what the crowd's saying to them. And they're saying, no, I'm not going to stop until he hears me. I'm not going to stop until I speak to him. I'm, I must take hold of him. You remember the Canaanite woman grabbed his ankles. <laughs> she basically fell down in front of him of like, I'm not letting you go until you hear me. There was that desperation. They were, they were earnest is the word that uh, John Chrysostom used. He said uh, they, they, were, they were serious about meeting Jesus. And even though they couldn't see where he was, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't walk around and get to him, they had their voice and they used everything that they had to say, have mercy on us as he came by. Not give me money, not, not 
at this time, they weren't even asking for healing. They were just asking for mercy. Would you, would you give us mercy? Would you hear us? We need to be careful. Uh, John Calvin pointed this out. We need to be careful as believers that we are not a hindrance to these people. Because there are people like this in our day that are, that are desperate. They don't know the right words to use uh, when they talk about being a Christian. I heard a testimony of a man recently. He was swearing in his testimony because he had been saved for like two days. And some people would say, that's, that's really not spiritual. You really need to do better than that. that. That language doesn't honor the Lord. And that person would be right. But what are they doing? They're putting an obstacle. Your language has to be right to come to Jesus. That's legalism. We need to be careful as believers that we're not doing that. Sometimes we see somebody in that desperate state, and, and if we're not careful, if, if we don't have the mercy that Jesus had on them, we will lay obstacles in front of them of, here's hurdles that you have to jump to come to Christ based on my standard of what I think it looks like to be a good Christian. When in reality, we see often in Scripture that uh, the people that are coming to Jesus know very little other than that they're desperate. And so we, we, we need to make sure that when we see somebody who's asking questions about the Lord or somebody shows up in the church and they look different or, or they come to your growth group and maybe they say a word they're not supposed to say or, or they, they don't seem to kind of fit the lifestyle that we think Christians should fit, we need to be careful that we're not laying an obstacle in front of that person. The Holy Spirit is powerful enough to correct people's behavior and lifestyle. He's able to do that. Um, the first thing that needs to happen is that person's heart needs to be transformed, and we can't make that happen with rules and obstacles. And so we need to be careful that we're not a hindrance to men like this. The spiritual people, even the disciples, the ones who were following Jesus, were trying to block these men from, from having access to Jesus because they didn't think that they were good enough. We need to be careful that we don't do the same thing. So they didn't fear men, but the second thing, and the thing that's really incredible about this text is their spiritual eyes were open. Even though these men were blind, they saw more than the disciples did about Jesus. Well, how do we know that? They recognized him as the son of David. When they called him the son of David, that is a name for the Messiah. So th this was not just a, a title that they used or a title that Jesus even claimed for, the, for himself. This is a title that the scripture uses to speak about the Messiah. And so when they cry out to him twice there, Son of David, have mercy on us, they knew uh, who they were talking to. They, they, they recognized him. And so even though they had no idea what he looked like, just like we don't, we, we don't have any idea what he looked like. He was not a, a European guy with really nice hair. Like that's, that would be really easy to figure out in the Middle East because um, he would have been the only man that looked that way. But we, we, don't, we don't know what he looks like. And they didn't know what he looks like, but they still knew who he was. They still recognized because they had heard of the works that he had done. They had heard of what he was teaching. And these men obviously knew enough of the scripture to know this is, this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God that is passing by us. Uh, that's full of mercy. How were their spiritual eyes open? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and, and, and this is probably one of the Bible verses that I use the most in my life to talk to people because so many people don't understand this. And so uh, if you're taking notes, write this down. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, really that whole chapter, but Paul says here, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. 
Well, what does that mean? That means apart from the Spirit of God opening your eyes spiritually, you cannot understand the gospel. You cannot understand God. You cannot understand Scripture. And not only that, but they're foolishness to you. Do you ever wonder when, you, when, you, when you're sharing the gospel with someone or even a, maybe a family member, you're talking to them about it, and it's just like talking to a wall? Of like, listen, like, do you not realize how great this Jesus is? Do you not understand how, how much of a need you have for him? The answer is no. They don't because they're natural. They, they, they don't even realize how lost they are. They're in darkness. And Paul's saying here, how does a person come to understand the word of God? How do they come to understand the gospel? Well, it's because they're made spiritual by God. Because the Holy Spirit of God brings them to life. He does a resurrection work in their spirit. And so how did these blind men the least men in society that nobody cared about, how did they know that Jesus was the Messiah? The reason why is, is because they saw with their spiritual eyes who he was. Because as Paul says, he who, appra- uh, he who is spiritual appraises all things. So how were they able to appraise that this truly is the Messiah, the Son of God? It's because they were spiritual, because the Holy Spirit of God had already worked Get this, God had already begun doing the work in these men before Jesus passed by. And the same thing happens to us. It's a mystery. Jesus says in John 3 that it's like, it's like the wind. And for some of us, there's a time where we heard the gospel and we knew right then, yes, this is, this is when I have believed. This is, when, this is my Damascus Road experience like Paul had. Others of us, it was this process of, I was hearing the gospel, I was... I was uh, learning about these things. Um, I like the way that C.S. Lewis says he had, he had been hearing the gospel from his friends and had been thinking about it, and he went on a motorcycle ride with his brother through the forest, and he said, when we left, I, wasn't a, a, I was an atheist, and when we arrived, I was a Christian. And he's like, I can't explain it, but somewhere on that ride, I, I had faith. I believed uh, in what I had heard. And so for, for some of us, it's that way. It's, it's different for different people. But for these men, when Jesus passed by, the Holy Spirit was already working before he even passed by. Um, and, this is, and this is why we share the gospel with everyone, because we don't know who the Holy Spirit is already working in. And sometimes you're going to throw out that seed, and it's going to land on good soil, and that person is ready to receive that word because they've been made spiritual by God. Um, and sometimes we throw out that seed, and they're not. And it may be because the Holy Spirit has not prepared that person yet to hear that. We can't discern that. We can't, we can't look and see who the Holy Spirit is working in and who he's not, which is why we share the gospel with everyone, even with the, the least of these, even with the ones that we think that person would never want to hear about Jesus or God uh, doesn't, want to kind of, doesn't want to save that kind of person. Text like this clearly shows us uh, we do not decide for Jesus uh, the work that he does. We, we are just the messengers. He is the one that does the work. So their spiritual eyes were open. And then we see again here that he's demonstrating what he had already taught. He, he just told the disciples, you want to know who the greatest is? And then he shows them, I'm the greatest. Because I went to the least person that nobody else wanted to listen to, and I heard that person and had compassion on them. If you start acting like me, then you can become the greatest in the kingdom. This is, this is how it's done. Augustine said it well. He said, Jesus is passing by so that we might shout at him. So this is what's happening this morning. If you're hearing this message this morning, whether that's you're sitting in this room or if you're online and watching the message, 
Jesus is passing by you this morning. And if you were not in Christ, you were, you were like this blind man that, that, can't, that cannot see. And Jesus is passing by you. And the invitation is, if you will call out to him and say, have, have mercy on me, a sinner, he'll answer you, just like he did with these men, if you will call out in faith. And so you may be hearing this message right now, and, and the Holy Spirit has been working in your heart and preparing your heart to hear that call, and right now is the call. So, so I'm telling you on behalf of God's word that if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, you will be saved this morning, right now. And that God has, has already prepared the grace for you and, and is ready to pour out his forgiveness on you and his blessings in you. Jesus is passing by. Every time we proclaim the gospel, he's passing by so that we might shout at him, uh, is what Augustine said. There's a book I've been reading with my kids. Uh, it's called Hind's Feet on High Places. So it's a famous allegory book. Um, if you haven't read it, it's really good. I would recommend it. And I thought about uh, a situation in the book. The main character of the book is named Much Afraid. That's her name. And uh, she has this, this, these family members that terrorize her. They keep her in her house. They, they, they um, are constantly tormenting her. And there's this, uh, there's this good shepherd there that, that she loves and that she wants to follow and be with. And she's always uh, too afraid to go. And in the book, uh, the shepherd does something to her. He puts, he puts a thorn in her heart, and he says that this thorn is, is my love and that it's going to grow into something beautiful eventually. It's going to change you, but it's, go, it's going to hurt along the way. And when he puts that thorn in her heart uh, of his love that begins to grow, it's at that time that even, even though she was afraid of her family members, even though she was afraid of being terrorized, she was compelled uh, by that change in her heart to go and follow the shepherd anyways, even though it was dangerous. She overcame her fears in doing that. And it's the same thing for us. These men were not afraid. Why? Because the love of God was already working in their heart. They were, they were already they already had faith in Jesus when he came by because they recognized him, not, not as a Messiah, but as their Messiah. They recognized him as that. So the first, the first thing that we see is that their vision was fixated on Jesus. The second thing that I want you to see is their vision was focused. Look at verses 32 and 34. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. So a couple things here. First, they, they knew who they were talking to. They weren't asking a, a doctor or a magician or some wise person or some other guy that came through claiming to be some kind of faith healer or something like that. They knew that it was the son of David, it was the Messiah that they were asking this of. But think about this. They did, they did not ask this based on Jesus' reputation. They asked it based on his identity. So if you think about the contrast, what are the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees always asking Jesus? Perform a sign so that we know that you're the Messiah. They're asking on his reputation. If you're really a miracle worker, if you're really the Messiah, then perform this sign, and based on your reputation of the miracles, we will believe that you're the Messiah. That's not what these men did. They called him son of David first. In other words, 
uh, we, are, we are asking you to heal us because of who you are, not because of what you've done. We're asking you because we know that you can do it, because you are the Messiah. And so because you are the Son of God and you have all power, uh, you don't need to prove to us that you're the Messiah. We are already resolved in our hearts that you are, whether you heal us or not. And that's the difference between faith. Faith is not trusting in the work, it's trusting in the worker. It's different. Remember the three Hebrew children. We're going to throw you in the flames if you don't worship this God. And what did they say? You can throw us in the flames and our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship your God because it's a false God. That's faith. Faith is, uh, I'm not trusting in the fact that God is going to protect me from the flames when, he throws, when, when I'm thrown into the flames. I'm trusting that he's going to be God whether I'm in the flames or not in the flames. It's his identity that I'm trusting in of who he actually is. And so they were asking based on his identity and not on his reputation, and that's the sign of faith. When we pray and we come to God with requests, we're not saying, well, I saw all these other things that you did for this person. Can you do that for me? We're saying, uh, I know who you are, and I'm asking because I know who you are, not because of what you do. The things that you do come out of who you are. One commentator uh, said this. I thought it was really great. With, with the idea that Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and fully human. It says, as truly human, he touched them with the hands of his flesh. But as truly God, he healed them by the word. You notice that? There's only one person who, who has power in their words, and that's God. God has the power to create. He has the power of life and death. He has everything in the power of his words. And so he proved that he was fully human by touching them, right? By putting his hands on their eyes. But he proved that he was God by his words. The power of healing did not come necessarily from his touch, but it came because he said it. And when God speaks something, it happens. We see this in the very beginning in Genesis. When God said, let there be light, well, what's the science behind that? I don't know, but if God decides that there's light, then there's light because he said so. There's, there, uh, he doesn't have to explain everything to us. And it's the same thing with this man. Well, well what happened? Did, did, uh, what did it look like when it happened? What were the details? You ever notice a lot of the miracles that leaves the details out? The lepers, did their arm grow back? What? We, don't, we don't know, but we know that if Jesus says that they're well, then they're well, because he said so. Sometimes our prayers are not answered because we're praying to a God who does not exist. We have to be like these men and know who we're talking to when we're praying. Baal does not answer with fire from heaven, and neither do the gods of our imaginations. If we have created a God in our mind, according to what we think God should be, and we pray to that God, nothing will happen, because it's an idol. It's just like the Old Testament says. It's made out of wood or stone. It's not alive. It was created by us. It has no power. It has no life. So if you want to see power in your prayers, if you want to see things change when you pray, you have to make sure that you're praying to a God who can answer prayer. And if it's a God that we've made up in our minds, he will not answer prayer because he's an idol. He's, he's uh, deaf and dumb and mute, as the scripture would say. He, it, it's worthless. There's a false God in the American church today, and this false God gives us the power to create things with our words, and promises healing in every circumstance because of the cross. 
If you, if you have friends uh, primarily in the charismatic movement, um, you will hear this teaching that by his stripes we are healed means that Jesus won for us physical healing in every circumstance. So when you pray for that person that has cancer and that person's cancer gets worse and they die, it's because you didn't have enough faith. And if you would have believed more, then you would have done that. Or the popular one among my generation is the idea of declaring and decreeing things. Right? I, I declare that I'm not going to get the flu this year, or I, uh, you know, I decree that this year is going to be a year of financial blessing for me. Where does that theology come from? It's called little God's theology. It's this idea that because you're made in the image of God, that your words have the power of God, and that you can create with your words. The Bible doesn't teach that. There is only one who can create with his words, and that is God. It is not us. And we know for a fact that when the Scripture says that by his stripes we are healed, it is not talking about physical healing. Why? All of the apostles are dead. Paul said that he had a thorn in the flesh that he asked God three times to remove from him. And what was God's response? My grace is sufficient for you. He didn't say, I will give you physical healing. He said, I will give you grace. I will give you my favor that will be powerful enough for you to endure the suffering. And so this idea that we have sickness in our lives or we have difficulty in our lives because our faith isn't strong enough, uh, that God is a false God. Suffering comes into our lives. God allows suffering in our lives. Sometimes God even brings suffering into our lives. Remember King Saul, it says that the Lord, the Lord sent an evil spirit to torment King Saul. The Lord did it. Now that might affect your theology a little bit, but that's what the Bible says. It wasn't the devil didn't do it. It says the Lord sent an evil spirit to torment Saul. And so sometimes things happen in our lives. Why? Because the Lord is doing something. Now he always has a purpose. And if we belong to him, we know from Romans 8 specifically, that it is for our good, that he is working that out for our good. But that doesn't mean it's easy. You've never gotten anything good in your life easily. Even if it was given to you, somebody else had to do something to work or earn for that. Nothing easy ever comes to us in this life. This is part of the curse, right? We must work by the sweat of our brow to get everything that we have. It's not just freely given to us anymore. And so this false God in the American church uh, promises healing in every circumstance because of the cross. And then when it doesn't happen, I have friends personally, I have people that I know personally who are apostate now, who deny Christ, who deny the Bible, who have walked away from the faith because they prayed to this God and he didn't answer them. And they abandoned what they thought was Christianity. Now, they never really had it to begin with because they were never really talking to the God of the Bible. And so I say this to warn you today. If your hope is in a God that's always going to provide healing, that's always going to answer your prayers the way that you want, that's never going to allow hardship to come into your life, that God is going to fail you and you will, you will turn away from Christ and abandon the gospel altogether because all of your hope is in your prosperity and not in the God of this Bible. And so we need to make sure that when we pray, we know who we're talking to. These men were not calling on the Pharisees. They were not calling on the magicians. They were not calling on the doctors. They were calling on the Son of God. And they said, you can have mercy on us. You can heal us, not somebody else. And so we need to make sure that when we're praying, we're doing the same thing, that we are calling on a God who answers prayer. The other thing about this God, again, is the power 
to create with our words. And we've got to be careful about this. If you listen to a lot of modern worship music, if you listen to a lot of popular preaching on the internet, you're going to hear uh, echoes of this kind of theology in there. Of we declare this or we decree this or I'm claiming this or I'm, I'm doing uh, whatever to get some kind of promise or benefit or blessing. Uh, guess what? If you are in Christ, the Bible says that you have access to all the riches and glory, that you have received the inheritance as sons, uh, the same inheritance that the firstborn Christ receives. There is nothing that we can ask for materially in this life that is better than what we have already received. And so the idea of asking God for a nicer car or a nicer house or more money or whatever is foolishness because the person that asks for that thing doesn't realize what they've already been given. You have the forgiveness of your sins, which is impossible. As Jesus said a couple chapters ago, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's, that, that is uh, more than we can ask. These men were asking for their eyes to be open for a few years before they died again. That's a small thing to ask for. Now, we read this kind of stuff and we think, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could just see healing miracles in our church today? Wouldn't that be wonderful if everybody in our church had perfect health and all of them were fully healed and that would be great? Well, yeah, that would be great for a few years. In 100 years, we'll all be gone. No matter how much physical healing we receive, no matter how much money we make, no matter how much stuff we have. So why would we ask for something? When the Bible says that our life is like a vapor, why are we trying to make the vapor better? It's, it's, it's gone. And yet God is saying, you know what? Your life is, this life is like a vapor, but in the life to come, you have treasure, you have treasure in heaven. Uh, not, not only that, but think, think about it for a moment. This Jesus, this same Jesus that they're asking for the physical healing of their eyes for, is the Jesus that the Bible says all things were made through him. He's created everything. He owns everything. He possesses everything. He has all power. And not only that, but the love of his Father is so great that we can't understand it. The, the love that we have is, is, is like a small picture pointing to the true love that he has for his Son. Who's, he's given him everything. The, the Bible says that the whole earth is Jesus' footstool. It all belongs to him. And you know what else the Bible says? The Bible says that if you are in Christ, that you have received an inheritance as the brother or sister of Christ. That this same God that pours out his love, that puts all things in subjection to Jesus, that provides everything for him, has done the same for you. And how silly would it be for, him, for us to, uh, to demand that he has to do something to these physical bodies in order to prove who he is? That's a foolish request. He, he's done... We, we don't even understand. He has to reveal to us in the Bible how much he's done for us. And the Bible clearly says that we don't even understand the extent of what he's done. And so we think in, in, our, in, our, in our small-mindedness that God performing some kind of physical miracle in front of us or giving us some kind of temporary prosperity is going to be proof that he's really God and that we should believe in him and trust in him. And the reality is that's so small. If you ask God this morning to heal your physical body and he did that, the, the size of that miracle compared to the forgiveness of your sins is, is negligible. It's a small thing. You, you hear, these, you hear uh, people say all the time to these faith healers on TV, well, if you're really a faith healer, why, why are the hospitals full? Go in the hospital and heal all these people with your faith. Okay, And that's a true argument, but guess what? The reality is, even if they could do that, compared to the salvation of one soul, that's nothing because all of those people will still die. 
and they'll still die in their sins. And so we forget sometimes, and and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. We should be very excited when a person gets baptized. Why should we be very excited? Because that is us witnessing a miracle. Not the baptism itself. There's nothing magical about the water, but like the prodigal son, this person was dead, and now they're alive. And they're showing us that they're alive. So, so what, is, what is greater, the, the healing of a physical ailment or resurrection from the dead? Resurrection is a greater miracle. And every time a person comes to Christ, we witness the resurrection of the dead spiritually. And one day we will re- witness the physical resurrection of the dead, which is hard to even imagine. So we need to make sure that we know who we're talking to when we pray, that we know when we worship, when we sing these songs, even in just a moment, when we sing songs and we do these things, we need to have in mind, who is this God that we're worshiping? Is it a God of our imagination or is it the God of the Bible? One of the things that many of us, uh, of us in this room have, have uh, experienced and come to terms with, myself included, is we have read things in the Bible that have made us uncomfortable about God. We've, we've heard things. A lot of us have grown up in church and we've heard things about God. And the more that we read the Bible, we realize that those things were not true. And it's hard. And many of you know what I'm talking about. When you read, you read something and you're saying, I can't unsee this now. This shows me something about God that I didn't see before. And now I see it everywhere. And you have to make a decision. Is, is this God the one that I'm going to worship? Or is it the God that I worshiped in ignorance before? And we have to make that decision. And that's a hard decision to make. But you know what? That continues on. It, it continues on, which is why we continue to study the word. We continue to preach the word because our vision of God becomes more focused over time. So their vision was fixated on Christ, but it became focused as they know him. And it's the same thing with us. The, the, the understanding that you have of this God and who he is and of Jesus and his work and of the Holy Spirit and his work should be becoming more and more focused as you go throughout your life. It's, it's sharper. You, under, you see it more clearly. You see it more clearly in the scripture. You see it more clearly in your life. And that culminates... Uh, with the Lord taking you out, out of the veil of this flesh one day. And when you die and, and, and the sinfulness of your mind that clouds your vision is removed, this is what Paul is saying. One day you were going to see clearly. You were going to see Jesus face to face. And, and there will be no more, no more uh, confusion about who he is. And what's the response to that that we see in Scripture is worship. It's all it, 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 the, the reality is, is these men saw something in Jesus that none of the seeing people could see because they had faith. And so when he passed by, their response is worship. Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus completed on the outside what was already started on the inside. You notice this? He did more than the mercy that was requested. Why did he do that? Because it's in his nature. Right? Jesus said that uh, even a wicked father will not give his ch- child a stone if he asks for bread or a snake if he asks for meat. He says, if a wicked father won't do that, how much more will your good heavenly father do for you? And this is the example we see here. They weren't necessarily asking initially for their eyesight to be restored. They were asking for his mercy. They recognized their sinfulness. Have mercy on us. And the, the word that it uses that says that he was moved with compassion, that's a different word in the original language than the mercy there. 
that compassion is the idea of having a a, a deep feeling in 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 your bowels, basically, that causes that causes you uh, to to do something for this person. So they were just saying, "Have mercy on us." And Jesus' responses it says that he felt it deeply inside. He felt broken over these men and their condition, and that moved with compassion of that deep compassion. He felt compelled to do more than what they asked. And he does that with us in the gospel. We come to him and we say, Lord, I'm a sinner. We do like the prodigal son did. If I, if I could even be a servant in your house, that would be enough for me. And what is his response? No, that's not enough. You have that. I'll give you the forgiveness of your sins, but I'm also adopting you into my family. I'm also giving you an inheritance. I'm not, I'm not just bringing your account up to zero. I'm filling it up with positive righteousness. Your account is completely full. So not only am I not condemning you, but I'm blessing you. And that's the way that God does with us in the gospel is he gives us far more than we could ask or imagine. And he's already done it already. And so Jesus, uh, he did more than the mercy that they had requested. And their, feel, their uh, healing had already begun by faith. The other gospel writers say that Jesus says to them, your faith has made you well. Now, does that mean that they just worked up this faith and that they, they were just really more uh, they studied the Bible more and they knew more about Jesus than everybody else in the crowd? No. It's what we said before. They were given the faith by the Holy Spirit already so that when Jesus passed by, they had the faith to call out to him and say, you are the son of David. If you want to declare something, declare what Scripture declares, that he is the son of David. That's biblical. They were declaring that of this man is the son of God. He is the Messiah. And their healing had already begun. Even if Jesus had not healed their eyes, they had already received a spiritual healing of being born again that was far greater than their temporary eyes. Their eyes would last for a few years. But he had already given them something before he even passed by that will last for eternity. We, we will see these men in glory one day, these two blind men. They, they, they are with him now, and they see him as he is now. And then Luke adds to the end of this passage that the people praised God. And, and imagine, imagine being in this situation and praising God because you see that these blind men healed. Now, that's a wonderful thing, but imagine, imagine the feeling of, of awe and worship, of them seeing, I'm standing next to this Messiah, this Messiah that was prophesied for thousands of years that God said is going to be the true deliverer of his people, the greater David, the greater Moses, the greater Abraham, the greater Elijah. He's, he is right here. And, I, and, and not only have they declared him to be that, but, I, but he has proven it with his works. The Scripture says that the Messiah will heal the blind. That's one of the prophecies of the Messiah. Can you imagine seeing that? Can, can you imagine this morning... If there was a visitor this morning that performed this work and you discover that it was Jesus himself sitting on the back row back there, can you imagine the response of worship that you would have of what, what a privilege that I could even be in the same room with the Son of God and that he's proven himself? And what would you even say to this man? I would just be speechless of like, I just can't even believe that I'm here in this moment. And this is their response, right? And this is leading up to them on their way to Jerusalem 
for Passover, not realizing that this same one that they're seeing is not just the greater Elijah and the greater Moses and the greater Abraham, but he's the greater Passover lamb. That he is the one who is about to go be slaughtered and that the judgment of God is going to pass not over Egypt but over the whole world and that everyone who is covered in his blood will be saved and preserved. So many of them, they didn't even realize it yet. They were so close and they had the Messiah right here and they still didn't realize the fulfillment and he had just revealed to the disciples, this is the plan. And so the disciples knew this was about to happen. It's incredible. And so just like these men, we want our vision to be fixated on Jesus and we want our vision to be focused on Jesus. And so my prayer for you this morning is that Uh, you would have spiritual eyes to see, whether that's for the first time or whether that's in a more focused way this morning, this wonderful Messiah that we have uh, that has saved us from our sins and has, has provided ultimate healing for us in his death, burial, and resurrection that we will be raised with him again one day and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And that's a beautiful promise that we have this morning. Let's pray. Father, We do thank you that we cannot be separated from your love. Lord, there are so many scary things in the world that that if we're not careful, we could think could separate us. There are uh, illnesses. There are uh, governmental concerns. There are uh, other religions that hate us. There are uh, our our own physical bodies and, and just our health and our age and All these different factors, Lord, it's so easy for us to be afraid that something could separate us from your love. And we have to hold on to your word this morning, Lord, that uh, there is nothing, not even ourselves, that can separate us. Lord, that you, you have decided from heaven before the foundation of the world that you loved us and you don't change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that, Lord, once you make up your mind about us, your mind is made up and it cannot be changed. And we thank you for that this morning, Lord, that we have security and hope and peace in the resurrection. Your servant Paul told us, Lord, that if there is no resurrection from the dead, that we should be pitied more than anyone, that we should not have hope. But we know that there is an empty tomb in Israel right now. We know that your son is seated at your right hand, interceding for us right now, Lord. And that is where our hope is in. It's not in miracles. It's not in healing. It's not in protection from suffering. It's in our high priest who's making intercession for us, Lord. And we know that you have received that sacrifice because you rose him from the dead. And so, Lord, we can have great confidence and hope this morning in the work of Christ on our behalf. We can know that we're your sons and your daughters and we are blessed by you and that you have a wonderful future for us, Lord. And we know, as your word says, that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we just ask that you would fill us with hope this morning and joy. Help us to remember the good news and to share it with others this week. So many are so desperate right now. They're like these men. They cannot see you. They cannot hear you. Or maybe they're praying to a God that's not really there, and they need to know the truth. So help us to be your witnesses today and to testify and proclaim the good news that we have that the world so desperately needs in this time. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.